Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. I am uh, uh, talking to you from somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> um, actually, I'm talking to you from the world headquarters of the Show Me Institute in uh, lovely uh, St. Louis, Missouri. More about that in a little bit. This week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by uh, the Bonson Group, as well as the annual William F. Buckley Prize Dinner in Chicago this year. I'll tell you more about both of those things in a little bit. Let me anticipate some criticism up front. If I sound all Jeb Bushy uh, in terms of being low energy, that's because I am low energy. It's been a kind of a grueling couple days. And um, I'm also plagued with, uh, you know, I'm, I may not be a particularly observant Jew, but I do honor Yom Kippur to the extent that I feel incredibly guilty about my poor Jewishness. And that's factoring into all of this as well. Uh, I'm joined here by Jack Butler. Jack, how are you doing? I am well. I, I'm amused and maybe flattered that you spoke of me as a colleague or, or at least something approximating an equal in your introduction. Yeah, I, I'm amused that you heard it that way. <laughs> and um, and so uh, we don't have a guest today, so we're going to do a quick, I don't know if it's going to be quick or not, sort of ask me anything episode and take go where the conversation takes us. So uh, where to begin, Jack? Where do we get? Where do, what do, we're, we're not going to talk about the Kavanaugh stuff simply because by the time this airs, who knows what's going to happen next. I'll just say that I am increasingly vexed by the whole thing, and I tend to side with, um, if you want to know what I think about all this stuff, read what read our National Review's editorial, read the stuff that David French has written, and some of the stuff that Andy McCarthy has written, and by all means, stay off of Twitter, because it will force you to sort of lower your esteem for humanity by one whole letter grade if you spend too much time on there, from what I can tell. So moving on from that, Jack, what what's what you you can uh, you can drive this train a little bit. Um, where should we start? Well, the questions from the AMA have conveniently uh, congealed into four categories, and they are silly questions, pet questions, pop culture questions, and nutrition questions. So, which category would you like to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> Let's take uh, nutrition for two hundred, please. <laughs> Wait, does this mean you have to answer these in the form of a question like Jeopardy? Um, I'm going to try to let, let's let's let, let's not take this shtick that we did not plan on further than it needs to. So no. Okay then. Uh, first question: Can you rank your favorite cigar types or countries? Yeah. So I I I I, I kind of can't insofar as I am not, despite my my love of belief, um, I am not an expert on cigars. I sort of have the same view towards cigars that I do towards uh, wine. I like the wines that I like. I am not obsessed with the Veblen-esque consumption of these things insofar as I, I honestly think that while there is such a thing as really bad cheap wine, once you get past, I don't know, $20, $30 a bottle for wine, um, it really is more to do with what you like and what you don't like. And I think you hit diminishing returns much past, I don't know, I'd pick a number, 40, 50 bucks. Every now and then I've had a really expensive bottle of wine that I really loved, but I've had plenty of really expensive bottles of wine that I thought tasted like, you know, Satan's urine. And so I have a similar attitude towards cigars. I cannot bring myself to spend my own money on a cigar that's more than, say, 20 bucks, and even that much is kind of rare. There are some real garbage, you know, five dollar. The 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 two buck chuck versions of cigars are pretty awful. And we don't need to review them here. But my my favorite go to cigar is um, the cigar called uh, Sober Mesa. I think the guy who makes it is a guy named Nick Saka. I could have that wrong. I should probably have looked that up. Uh, but I didn't know the question was coming. And I think it's just an astoundingly great value for a cigar. Of the expensive cigars, if you know, if someone's saying, you know, go into my, some rich guy's saying, go into my humidor, or if we're at a cigar shop and I have the opportunity to try something great, I really do love the Padrones. I don't like too much Maduro cigars because they're just too intense for me. I like the sort of the medium brand. There are these cigars that come out. Uh, I believe the label's Illusion, but it might be Epernay. I can't remember which one is like the. The, the the brand for the entire series and which one is the specific, but these uh, Epernay Illusions, I think, are great sort of $10, $11 cigars. 
And then all the really, you know, this is something I get asked all the time about Cuban cigars. I like Cuban cigars. I think Cuban cigars are great. I really love free Cuban cigars. But I think um, Cuban cigars, first of all, there are an enormous number of counterfeit ones out there. And if they're not properly stored, even if they're authentic, they're kind of garbage. And I think they're wildly overpriced. Uh, it's sort of like the premium people pay to buy, you know, real champagne because it comes from the re- the champagne region. Simply because it's Cuban doesn't mean it's better than some of the fantastic cigars that come out of the Dominican Republic or Nicaragua and all of that. In fact, a lot of those cigars I think are better because the really great Cuban cigar makers took their seeds and their skills with them and left. But there are a lot of people out there who simply want to show off that they're smoking Cuban cigars. At the same time, the really high-end ones are magnificent. But I'm the kind of guy who, I'm not cheap, but I just hate being taken. So I'm the kind of guy who will bring my, I will go to the local CVS and get a jar of cashews rather than spend the 14 bucks in a fancy hotel's, you know, uh, snack tray for uh, for their stuff. Um, I just don't like paying the overpriced, you know, the premium markup for these kinds of things. So um, I really can't say enough good about the Sober Mesa cigars. They're really hard, kind of hard to find, but they're just really, really fantastic. <laughs> I, I like that you started your, your five-minute answer to a question about cigars by saying that you weren't a cigar expert. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like I have a brother-in-law who began a story – I asked him about moose hunting. He lives in Alaska. And he says, oh, I'm not really a moose hunter. And then he proceeds to tell me this unbelievable story for 15 minutes about how he shot and wounded a moose once, had to mark, had to chase it down through a bog for a mile and a half, kill it, and then salvage the best 75 pounds of moose meat and good out of it and tell me that he's only shot and killed maybe a dozen moose in his life. But I'm not a moose hunter. But I'm really, I'm not, if, if you actually talk to real cigar experts, I can't. I can't talk to them for more than three minutes without it being clear that I don't really know very much about the intricacies of all that stuff. Well, that's true about you with most topics, isn't it? It's true. It's true of many of them. Um, uh, but you know, but for that comment, I will be docking your pay ten percent for the next two months. Anyway, uh, what else we got? Oh well, actually, I have a question. Uh, what what caused you to change your mind about cigars? Because you were on record in the uh, Wall Street Journal 25 years ago as being against this this trend at the time of of young conservatives deciding to smoke cigars. So what happened? Yeah. Well, did you change your mind just because you got old? That's part of it. I used to when I was younger, like, and and this is true for lots of people who are not young, but like. Some people just can't handle the taste in their mouth the next day, which is awful. Particularly, like, if you've been drinking a lot the night before, it just brutalizes you. The piece I wrote for the Wall Street Journal was about this just absolutely absurd poser trend that overtook young people in young conservatives in Washington in the early 1990s after Newt Gingrich and the contract with America crowd took everything over. There was all of this crazy triumphalism about how we're this new alternative culture, we're all cool, all these kids were wearing, all these 20-something kids were, were trying to dress like, you know, Tom Wolfe and smoking cigars they clearly didn't like, and I just found, found the whole thing to be so unbelievably pretentious. The reason I changed on cigars was I have to blame liberal fascism. When I was working on that book, um, I smoked a pipe almost entirely for the nicotine. I would never dream of doing it in public because just, I just thought it looked so ridiculous. Um, and then uh, after finishing the book, I remember I was at a bachelor party in Vegas, and there will be no letters about that trip during my confirmation hearing, in which someone was handing out cigars, and it turned out that I kind of had se- – I, I don't know if this sounds pretentious or not, but I kind of seasoned my palate. And it turns out I really started to like cigars a lot. And then on my last couple books – I got to a bad place where I kind of, I won't put too fine a word on it, got addicted to it. And so, you know, both of my last two books, I wrote big chunks of them, you know, at my cigar shop, which is why I thanked Signature Cigars on Wisconsin Avenue in the acknowledgments for uh, Suicide of the West. Yeah, when are they going to become an advertiser on this podcast? It's a good question. It's a very good question. And they, they, you know, you know, 
Sorry for the ad sales team, but they could easily pay me in cigars. But at some point, I do want to have a cigar episode and maybe even do it from the cigar shop because there are all these really fun, interesting, quirky dudes at my cigar shop that, um, you know, I wrote a piece about it for the magazine a couple years ago about how going to my cigar shop was the most democratic thing I do in small D sense in that it is this, it's sort of like Charles Murray's thing about playing poker at Charlestown. The cross section of people you interact with and become friends with, it's sort of like cheers, you know, it's a great or pubs in London. It's just a great place to sort of hang out and hear different perspectives on things. Although I got to say, most of these guys, they sit around, is, is it Pinochle where you have trump cards? I have no idea. I don't believe in filthy lucre. Um, but these guys, they play cards, a bunch of them play cards all day long at the counter, and they're constantly screaming about Trump. And that's proven to be really problematic because they're not talking about the president they're talking about trump cards <laughs> and you know it does catch your ear when you're trying to write a column but anyway okay next nutrition question do you have a favorite pizza topping um yes uh i would say it's probably either pepperoni or sausage and arugula okay is that all you're going to say about that <laughs> I'm not going to expand on that. <laughs> All right. Uh, how many Alex Jones nutrition shakes do you think you could drink in one sitting? Um, more than enough to start seeing all the frogs around me as gay. <laughs> but other than that, I don't know. I mean, what, 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 do you know anything about Alex Jones nutrition shakes? I mean, you actually you are uh, a a you are a fan of the old Alex Jones at least, right? Before you sold out to the globalists. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm gonna listen to Alex Jones, I wanna find out who the reptilians are. I don't, I don't go to Alex Jones to find out that, I don't know, the Democrats are bad or whatever. Other people are better Trump apologists than Alex Jones. Right, I mean, if you're gonna go out for pizza, you don't wanna go, you know, you don't wanna go get Domino's, right? You wanna, you want the real thing. So are you, so just for listeners, when, when you first started working for me, you were, and when I taught in that class that you were in at Hillsdale, you were much more, or at least, let me put it this way, you revealed much more your conspiratorial conspiracy theorist side than you do these days. Are you still a conspiracy theorist guy, or, or have, you, uh, have you grown? Oh, I see how it is. You're turning the tables on me, Goldberg. <laughs> I have, because I'm so tired. Uh, yeah, okay, well, the thing is, I, I have a public reputation now. <laughs> oh, so you sold out. You haven't given it up. You just don't want to reveal it. I, uh, let me put it this way. Have you seen Silence, the Scorsese film? I have not. All right, well, it's a recent movie, so sorry for the spoilers. Um, but at the very end of the movie, the main character, uh, a 17th century Jesuit who has given up his faith under pressure in Japan, is cremated as an old man. Um, but, but at the very end, there's this sort of zoom shot, and you get to see that he's holding a crucifix as he's being cremated. So, uh, after all these years, he, he held on to his belief on the inside, despite external appearances. Uh huh. I'll just leave that there. I see. So you, so you're sort of like Bill Clinton in that letter where he decided to forego publicly his, um, more radical side so as to still be viable within the political system. Sort of like. Van Jones did the same thing. He did. You know, many, many, many people did. I mean, that's what the long march through the institutions is all about. But we are not going to get into a cul-de-sac about Gramscian cultural theory. So let's proceed. What else do we got? Well, the remaining categories are silly, pets, and pop culture. Let's go to pop culture. Okay. Could you provide your rankings for the so bad they're good sci-fi movies? Uh this is tough, right? Because, you know, the, the mystery science theater sci-fi movies, for the most part, are just simply bad. So it kind of, it, but you can find entertainment in watching them because of their badness. I'm going to do podcast hosts prerogative and kind of slightly change the question and sort of do not so much they're so bad they're good, but they're underappreciated because they're actually really just actually good. Because, I mean, I, what, what, what's the one that you always want to talk about um, with, with Sean Connery? Oh, uh, Zardoz? Zardoz, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go into the weeds on Zardoz and that kind of stuff. And I'm not going to make a case for like The Last Starfighter. But I will make the case for Dark Star, which also is in another category of mine, which is movies I loved so much, I'm terrified of seeing them again 
for fear of finding out that they're not good anymore. But for those of you who don't know, Dark Star was, I believe it was John Carpenter's first movie. Is that right? Did yes. we talk about this on the podcast before? I know we've talked about it. Yeah, we've discussed Dark Star before. Okay, so I won't dwell on it. But basically, you can make the case that it really was the inspiration for Alien. Um, and it's a brilliant parody of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And you would think, if you saw it today, it was also a parody of Alien, but it actually came out before Alien. I think, uh, let's see what else. Outland? Did you ever see Outland? That's another Sean Connery movie. It is another Sean Connery movie. Fantastic movie. I could be wrong about this, but I think one of its lasting contributions to the sci-fi genre was uh, depicting the future as gritty rather than like super hygienic and clean. You know, there was this weird tendency about sci-fi movies. That it was First of all, like there was a utopian streak. Um, and there was also this where everybody is sort of their best selves. You know, that's basically all of the original Star Trek stuff. But there's also this idea that everyone would be wearing identical clothing, you know, and, and Outland, which is about a mining colony in the outer planets, very much in keeping with sort of the stuff in the sci-fi series Expanse, which I think is great, um, which you should watch, which we've talked about. Outland was, did this great thing about sort of the griminess of what early space colonization would look like, because it would be very sort of blue collar, very sort of leather neck kind of thing. It did ruin discussions of space for a long time for people my age, because in the movie, it was also, it was the first movie I ever encountered that dealt with the fact that space is a vacuum and that our bodily organs are all contained because of atmospheric pressure. And if you went into a pure vacuum of outer space, all of your innards would like erupt and, and all that. But they went too far and made it so that if you went into space, you would literally explode, which I don't believe is scientifically accurate. I will make a case for Omega Man, which was one of the, uh, I think there were like three or four movie remakes of, or adaptations of, what was the, it was called, it was the I Am Legend, the uh-huh. Smith movie. But this one was with um, Charlton Heston which is really gonzo, sort of 1970s stuff, which I really liked. I loved the movie Starship Troopers, even though it was a hate crime against the original uh, Heinlein book and was, what was the director's name, Verhoeven? Yeah, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, even though it was a, um, and a lot of people missed this, it was, a, it was essentially a somewhat invidious parody of, of, sort of what he believed to be right-wingness and militarism and all that kind of stuff. But I still loved it on its merits, and I will defend it. I will, I, will, I will fight anybody who disagrees with me with sticks. The sequel was terrible. And I will make um, – let me see what else. I'm not going to defend – what else? No, I won't even get into that. Um, the I liked the sequels of the original Planet of the Apes movies. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. What was it? Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Escape beneath, from the Planet of the Apes. Don't forget Beneath. Beneath beneath the Planet of the Apes. I thought, you know, I mean, admittedly, they were, um, they were trying to thin out the broth quite a bit with a lot of those. I actually really liked, and I really don't want to see it again for fear of having to change my opinion, the short-lived Planet of the Apes television series. But uh, I thought those movies actually did, did some interesting stuff, particularly the stuff with the sort of ha- the the sort of prequel backstory of how the Planet of the Apes became the Planet of the Apes, I was always fascinated with that stuff. Um, so while we're on this sh- subject, apparently Rebecca Ferguson is in the running to be cast as the Lady Jessica, not in the adaptation of Your Life, but in the new adaptation of Dune. Do you have feelings about this? I don't. You don't? <laughs> no. I mean, I I, I do think. Odds are this version of Dune will also be very bad um, just because I think there is something about the source material that lends itself to bad movies. Um, and I don't want to hear about how the, the, what was it, William Hurt version was good. And yeah, it was better than the Kyle MacLachlan version, but they're all, they're all pretty bad. Okay. Would you support an FBI investigation to determine who is truly responsible for all the awful movies based on the DC Universe characters? That <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know where that was going, did you? I did not. I would not support an FBI investigation in that regard. I think we can probably simply blame uh, late-stage capitalism for that. <laughs> okay. 
Um, final pop culture category question, and then we should probably move on to the first ad. Yeah, um, and we should actually have we'll get some substance into this in the back half, you know, in case we have haven't lost everybody already. <laughs> Asteroids or missile command? Oh, that's tough. Um, I loved both games. Um, for those who don't know, uh, the missile—I believe Missile Command was the first rollerball controller arcade video game. At least it's the earliest one I can remember. And basically, what you were just simply trying to do is protect your. It was sort of like Space Invaders, but instead of descending aliens in regimental form descending from the sky you were trying to defend your cities from icbms it was pretty friggin' dark that this was a game marketed to little kids <laughs> so i really like missile command but i also liked space invader i mean uh, uh, uh asteroids and do you know that you might actually know this i remember there being a hot discussion about how the asteroid scene in um what is it return of the jedi empire empire was actually supposed to be in the original Star Wars, and it was cut, and that was actually the original inspiration for Asteroids, but I think that might have just been the um, adolescent crowd I hung up, hung around in spreading, you know, insane rumors. Um, but have you ever heard that? I have never heard that. Sounds like fake news to me. Yeah, I think it probably is. Too good to check. <laughs> um, those are all the pop culture... Pop culture questions, excuse me. Would you like to read the first ad now? (laughs) Sure. I'm sure our advertisers are delighted by being advertising on this podcast. So if you think this this episode of The Remnant is highly lacking in intellectual nutritional content, I don't blame you. Um, And one of the places you could go to find a much heavier dosage of intellectual content on this podcast would be the episode I did with our friend David Bonson. Um, who's a bit of a, a polymath and uh, has written a great book about the financial crisis and the changes in our culture called The Crisis of Responsibility. But in his day job, he's actually, it's a, it's a weird coincidence. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the odds of, of Lou Gehrig's disease um, afflicting Lou Gehrig. I mean, who would have guessed, you know, that, that kind of coincidence. Dave Bonson is also the head of this thing called The Bonson Group. Um, and uh, he's our, uh, our, one of our sponsors this week. Have you ever wondered how the people managing your money view the world? Many of us who share certain ideological convictions about society and government would love like-minded professionals involved in the management of our financial affairs, but certainly are not willing to sacrifice investment sophistication or expertise to find such people. Fortunately, you do not have to. The Bonson Group is one of the nation's top independent wealth management firms where competence and experience are not discarded and yet a firm understanding of conservative principles and the superiority of free markets are foundational to what they do. Managing $1.5 billion with offices in Newport Beach, and there are lovely offices, I've been there, as well as in New York City, the Bonson Group is a legal fiduciary, meaning they have nothing to sell you They receive no commissions and offer pure investment advice completely free of conflicts of interest. At the Bonson Group, you will receive a first-class, highly customized wealth management experience from investment management to tax planning to estate planning to charitable planning and so much more. Detailed portfolio updates, market commentary, and analysis of politics and your money are all delivered to you each and every week. Not cookie-cutter content written by Wall Street's most liberal, thoughtless knobs, (laughs) but rather actual written analysis from the Bonson Group's chief investment officer, David Bonson, every single week. Check out the Bonson Group at www.dividendcafe.com. That's www.dividendcafe.com, where you will find weekly market commentary that reflects a keen understanding of financial markets and not just a crass effort to sell you gold. From www.dividendcafe.com, you can find all the information you want about the Bonson Group, consistently heralded as one of the very top financial advisory firms in the country by Barron's, Forbes, the Financial Times, and more. So check out the Bonson Group at dividendcafe.com and see how Wall Street investment talent actually can mix with a deep conservative ideology. 
So there you have it. Um, what, where, where should we go with here? Oh, let me do a, a quick plug for me. Um, so as many listeners know, the original version of Suicide of the West was well over 200,000 pages. This is something that Jack knows. Words. Words. Words, yes. Pages would be awesome. Um, <laughs> over 200,000 words. A normal book is usually around eighty to 100,000 words. So Jack and I had to put on our hip waders and hazmat suits and take hatchets and chainsaws to the meat of the book in a lot of ways. And... One of the things I've done is I've started to adapt uh, some of that material for long, long-form essays, the latest of which is in Commentary Magazine, and the title is, when I should do it in a Mugatu voice, is, Socialism is so hot right now. And the argument I make in there, which I, I, I touched on in another commentary essay that I did, I don't know, eight years ago, is uh, the sort of the real roots of, of socialism. Uh, one of the things that sort of drives me crazy in the way both the left and the both the way and the left and the right talk about socialism is it's kind of like nailing jello to a wall. When you talk to the left about socialism, whatever version of socialism that is inconvenient to them, they say that's not real socialism. And uh, and when you talk to people on the right, socialism is almost always not always, but very often it has to be Marxism. Maoism, communism, Stalinism, and all of the rest. And um, the fact is, is that socialism as an intellectual doctrine predates Marx by a good century, if not 10,000 years, because I actually think we're kind of hardwired to want to be socialists. You know, in our natural environment, we evolved to live in small bands and, and troops. We call them tribes, but that's really not technically the right sociological term. And in tribes, it was very close to the to what we would call a Marxian ideal in the sense that resources were generally shared, where everyone was expected to pull their own weight, and inequality was relatively unknown. I mean, yeah, the big man got and the hunters got the, the choicest cuts of the mastodon, but for the most part, every, everyone was in it together. And that's, that is the environment in which we evolved, and that is why we kind of have essentially, excuse me, an evolutionary sweet tooth for some sort of socialist organization. Um, but even as a f political philosophy or a doctrine, socialism can, can really be traced back to uh, this guy, I can't remember his first name, Babeuf. Um, who, Louis, I believe. Louis. Um, let's call him Louis, because he's French. Uh, and Babeuf... Uh, and Josh Moravchik's fantastic book called Heaven on Earth, which is a history of socialism, I think Moravchik calls him the first socialist. And he was of the sort of the revolutionary French period. And when you listen to him describe um, socialism, it's, it's very much in what I call the tradition of the cult of unity, that we're all in it together, no artificial distinctions between people, that private property is inherently divisive, right? That's that line you get from Rousseau where he says, basically, he traces all modern evils to the first man who put a fence around a piece of land and said it was his property. And this, this impulse towards socialism is fundamentally, I would argue, a psychological one, um, not a doctrinal one. Marx's great success came from claiming the language of science to describe this essentially emotional or psychological desire. And he hung thousands and thousands of pages around making this sound like a scientific inevitability, that we were destined for socialism. And as I argue in the book, if you look back at what he was actually talking about, what the end of history looks like, it is very, very much like what Rousseau was talking about, where we basically could live as essentially noble savages. We could live independent, free lives where we have no artificial restraints on what we want to do. We are free spirits, and, and I think that one of the reasons why Marx hung on and became so influential is, and this is sort of a Hayekian point, is that it was scientism. It was taking the language of science and hanging it on basically romantic aspirations. And so anyway, in the essay that I have in the, in the book, I mean, in commentary, I, sort of, I trace some of this history, and I hang a lot of it on this somewhat glib and too cute by half uh, formulation that uh, oh gosh I'm brain farting on his name um, the former prime minister of England Tony uh, Blair Tony Blair, Tony Blair um, when they got rid of the old 
sort of serious socialism plank in the Labor Party Constitution or Labor Party Charter, and he said, look, that kind of socialism is no longer operative. It doesn't really work. Instead, I'm in, I still believe in socialism, which is a hard thing to explain on a audio podcast, but um, he had a dash between social and ism, and it was much more of a sort of, think of it as socialism-ish, right? It was this general assumption that we should all be in it together, that we should get rid of inequality, that we should have social solidarity, but we can't completely get rid of the market. And so much of the stuff that we hear today from both the left and the right about how we need to get past capitalism, we need to get past sort of neoliberalism. Uh, uh, R. Reno had a sort of, I, I thought, a sort of incredibly bad faith attack on me in the latest issue in First Things, an attack on the book, where it wasn't, uh, I am thoroughly unpersuaded that he actually read the whole book, but uh, he very much is part of the school on the right that wants to get past the sort of neoliberal or classical liberal consensus and find new ways of social organization. And I think Elizabeth Warren, Warren Alexandria um, Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, they're all practitioners of not some Marxist version of doctrinaire uh, socialism, but they're sort of socialism-ish. They, they can't really point to real economic doctrines to justify what they're talking about. Instead, what they do is they sort of cherry-pick from different places around the world that call themselves socialist or that they call socialist and say, we can do it like that. And they want to organize society in a way that binds us all together. They want to use the state to do it. And um, I'm not going to go deep into the weeds of the peace or any further deep into the weeds of the peace, but, but part of my contention is that, first and foremost, none of this is new. Every generation, you have people who come forward who want to claim that liberal democratic capitalism is outdated, um, it's no longer fit to the challenges of the time, and what we need to do is come up with some new third way or some middle way that binds us all together in some way that ultimately empowers the state to determine how we should organize our lives economically and in and, and, and lots of other ways. And what Reno objects to and what you know, uh, lots of people on the left do is, is, is my contention that all of those efforts are always and everywhere reactionary. Um, the one political economic philosophy that gets the least attention and is the most important in our lives isn't socialism, it is corporatism. And corporatism doesn't mean, I mean, I remember Robert Kennedy Jr. would go around and insist all the time that corporatism means rule by corporations, which is, to borrow a term from social science, really friggin' ignorant. That's not what corporatism means. What corporatism means is that the big units of society, it comes out of Catholic social teaching in the, in the um, 19th century. It's this idea, and it was the system of how Europe was organized for most of, its hist modern, most of its history. It's this idea that the major units of society, the stakeholders, right? So you have big businesses, but also labor unions, also organized religion, all of the quote-unquote leaders of leading institutions, they should sit around the table and they should divvy up how society should be organized amongst them. And they should all work in coordination with each other. And this is how most of the planet is still organized, right? Uh, Douglas North talks about how only about 15% of the planet are what he calls open access societies. These are liberal democratic societies, meritocratic societies where elites shuffle in and out of power, but everyone agrees on the rules of the game, even when they're inconvenient to themselves. And almost every other kind of society is, is a, do you remember what the term is? Is it closed access or something like that society? It's a corporatist society where a handful of elites work together to divvy up resources, divvy up rewards, and they may rotate in and out of power, but it's a closed system where outsiders can't come in, where they control access to all of the important political, economic resources of society. That's what Putin's Russia is. That's what almost every sort of undemocratic society all around the world is. And that is not consistent with our, our tribal sweet tooth, but it is consistent with this thing that appeals to us, which is this sort of sense of, of, of national unity or belonging or a divine right of kings. It is this idea of everyone needs to know their place. 
and um, it's how Europe defined itself in terms of its guild system, in terms of its you know sort of you know the the as they would put it in Game of Thrones, you know the crown and the faith are the twin pillars of society, and what is so remarkable and new and transformative about liberal democratic capitalism is it rejects all of that and says that in the extended order of liberty, um, we need to have fair and neutral rules for everybody. That means you can have creative destruction. That means if a big institution like GE or, or, or U.S. Steel um, can no longer make it in the market, the state shouldn't intervene because it's too big to fail. And time and time again, we see whenever there's a real challenge to liberal democratic capitalism, it doesn't, at least in the West, it, it may ultimately, the end goal by some people might be socialism, but the intermediary stage is always some form of corporatism where the elites want to define the rules to help themselves. Um, and they want um, economic competition to the extent that it creates efficiencies for the sort of small contractors that help the big corporations, but they don't want a system of true free markets that puts themselves in danger from competition. And I think that's, if you look at Elizabeth Warren's new economic proposals, if you look at the things that, you know, if you listen to the rhetoric of Barack Obama when he was talking about healthcare and getting all the stakeholders around the table, that's how elites do politics. And they keep coming up with excuses and rationalizations to reorganize society to fit their own interests along those lines. It's very much like the iron law of oligarchy. And anyway, I get deep into the weeds and all that in the latest issue of Commentary, and maybe we can talk about that more another time. But I figured we should have some substance before we get back to, you know, if I could be a tree, what kind of tree would I be? <laughs> Why is it that the elites are often so successful in getting the masses to sign on to their vision? Or are they? Or, I mean, I guess in the Soviet Union, for example, um, the Bolsheviks never really won a majority of the seats in the Duma or anything like that. Um, but yeah, if, it's, I mean, if it's supposedly an elite-driven project, why are often the masses on the side of it? This is my question, by the way. This is not yeah. someone predicting what you were going to talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, I think sometimes you have to go sort of case-by-case -case basis. But if you go and you look at some of the pieces, uh, was it Corey Robin had the piece in the New York Times Magazine, which I thought on it, internal to itself was actually pretty good. Um, at least he was honest that so much of the language, uh, so much of the real motivation and the rhetoric of today's sort of contemporary socialists um, like, Cort like Cortez and others is it's, it's really not about, you know, sort of nationalizing industry and all these kinds of things. It is about power. It is about co-opting certain segments of the public towards having more say. And that's why the have-nots are always sort of more interested in socialist appeals. But here's where you can really see the sort of overlap between socialist rhetoric and nationalist rhetoric, um, uh, or at least the sort of hard nationalist, sort of the, the Trumpist or Bannonist nationalist rhetoric. It's, it's basically appealing to the forgotten man, right? So the, the coalition that makes up the left has different forgotten people than the coalition that makes up the right, but it's still stripped of the the you know the sort of uh, rhetorical flourishes and the specific appeals to specific constituencies. It's the same pitch: is that the system needs to that there are certain people who are being screwed by this system, and therefore this system should throw out neutral rules or abandon the principle of neutral rules in favor of helping the right people. And so in, 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 you know, sort of very, 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 very blue Brooklyn, um, the rhetoric is all about getting rid of, about taking the, taking the fight to rich landlords because they're the ones who are screwing people in gentrifying areas of New York. On the right, it's this talk about globalists who are manipulating their lives or the transnational progressives. And look, I am not disputing. I mean, the reason why these appeals work is that they have a point. You know, the, 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 you could, there are good reasons to be pissed off at landlords. There are good reasons to be pissed off at, you know, the EU, um, or the administrative state. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to a lot of those arguments, but the answer isn't to throw away neutral rules, right? I mean, the whole point of classical liberalism, the whole point, the whole principle underlying 
the, the, the sort of founding of this country is that the rules should not change for most of the conduct of human affairs depending upon which faction is temporarily in power. And instead, what we're sort of seeing now is both from the certain aspects of the right and from the left is that the state needs to pick winners and losers, not just among industries, but in terms of coalitions of voters and bend the system in their favor. And again, I think there's some merit to the, the anger that these constituencies feel. But the, the problem comes not with sort of trying to make the government more responsive to certain groups. The problem comes when that becomes the overriding ethos and you say, since these neutral rules no longer worked for my people, we should get rid of those neutral rules entirely. There used to be great debates about freedom of speech on campuses. Now the very principle of freedom of speech is being thrown aside because it is seen as a tool of white supremacy and the patriarchy and all of that kind of thing. Martin Luther King appealed to the American people's desire for neutral rules when he gave his March on Washington speech about how the Declaration of Independence was in effect a promissory note and he was coming here, coming to Washington to, co to make good on it where we, you know, we promised everybody that they would all be treated equally in the eyes of government, and they weren't being. So he was really appealing to the best version of the American understanding of itself. Now you hear more and more people saying the very idea of colorblindness is a con, it's fake, it's, it's a tool of white supremacy, and that's what's so disturbing. That same thing applies to these arguments about economics, where this idea of free markets People say, well, that just doesn't help us anymore. Instead, we have to pick winners and losers, or we need industrial planning. And these arguments, they come up again and again and again um, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century. In the 1980s, you had people like Lester Thoreau talking about how we need to copy the Japanese Ministry of Industrial Trade and, and Technology, or whatever that thing, MIDI, was called. In the 1990s, you had, you know, uh, what's his name, Thomas Friedman just, I mean, I thought outrageously and legitimately unpatriotically talking openly about how Chinese authoritarian capitalism was superior to free market capitalism and that, you know, he, that was his, his, if only we could be China for a day period where, you know, as I used to joke in speeches, it was as if the founding fathers were, you know, despite all of these debates about checks and balances and separation of power and, and, uh, pitting faction against faction and the need for protecting individual rights as if they were, they were brilliant except for one oversight because that stuff should only apply for 364 days a year. And on the 365th day, we should have tyranny day where all of the technocrats get to impose optimal policies on the country regardless of what you know the Bill of Rights says and regardless of what voters want. And this this sort of you know, kid pressing his glass up against the candy store, envying authoritarian regimes or uh, corporatist regimes around the world is this is an ancient story of of sort of progressive technocrats and also to a certain extent sort of populist nationalists that keeps coming up. And every time they come up, they use the exact same freaking argument, which says. This system might have worked in the recent past, but it no longer works now. And so now we need to give power to people like me because I'm smarter than the market. I'm smarter than the voters, and I know how to run everything. You're being a little too easy on Friedman there. He was still openly pro-totalitarian as of, I don't know, 2009 you said the mid nineties. Okay, well that's when it started. Oh, okay. It went in, it went it went on for about a decade, and and for maybe we can find it. We can put it in the show notes. I wrote a piece about Friedman a few years about I don't know five or six years ago about um how uh called I think Friedman a flame, which sort of surveyed all of this stuff. Wow. All right, so we want to get back to the um the trivialities and the um the silliness and the ask me anything stuff. Yeah, I'll say one more thing of substance before we move on to that. Please um, do. Your, your argument about um, the Declaration and Martin Luther King is a promissory note. I think you're going to have in, what, a couple weeks, an interesting discussion about this with Patrick Deneen, because his argument about the Declaration and the principles of liberalism at the root of the founding are that, taken to fruition, they lead to 
dissolution and collapse. So I don't know. I don't, you guys are going to – you'll have an interesting conversation. I'll put it Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll preview part of my response to that. As you know, for a long time, the working title of this book was The Tribe of Liberty. And the problem was was that the um, the tyranny of the publisher's sales force didn't like it. <laughs> and um, uh, and But part of that argument, which I mentioned in the book, is that we very much need a pre-rational commitment to some of this stuff. As I, as I argue in the book – this is why I don't really disagree with a lot of what Deneen says and why I have some sympathy for uh, Yoram Hazoni's critiques of, of, of liberalism as well. I've been finally catching up on his book. You know, the, we get the causation backwards. The principles that are enshrined in the Declaration and in the Bill of Rights were the end product of like a thousand years of English history. So the, 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 for example, the doctrine uh, that's enshrined in the Fourth Amendment, right, that the state needs essentially probable cause. It needs a good reason to search your stuff. That begins almost a thousand years, or not a thousand years, almost a thousand years earlier in this quirky British custom or English custom that said a man's home is his castle, that the king, that the sovereign needed a good reason to uh, violate the sovereignty of a man's home. And this was, you know, it was in common law, but it was also part of custom that gets into all sorts of, you know, Germanic tribes and whatnot. And it, 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 it was a cultural norm long before it was an abstract idea. And one of the glorious things about the American founding is that it was essentially abstracting out the self-understanding of the founders as English people. So many of the debates at the time were about our ancient English, our English-British liberties, our, English, our ancient English rights, and how the crown was violating Engl- the, the, the best version of England's own understanding of itself. And so they, they, they kind of put these cu- – the, the, because they were so pissed off about how they were treating, being treated by the crown, they kind of put these ideas in a centrifuge, and they purified them. And then they wrote them down, which was awesome. And so I kind of agree with Deneen and Hazoni about this idea that on their own, they are insufficient to the task. They have to actually be sort of worked into the dough of American culture, American civilization, so that we have them as a, a cultural expectation, um, a sort of a dogmatic understanding of what it means to be a citizen. And that we don't have to sort of go to the textbook and say, here's why it is. We know it as a matter of culture. And so when civil society and culture and family and all these institutions that take barbarians that were the barbarians that were born as and turns us into citizens, when those institutions stop doing that job, the Constitution alone won't protect us. These axioms won't protect us. They're helpful in the fight to sort of rebuild the culture. But we need the culture to sort of be in on it. And, you know, we need to have this sort of sort of country music style, you know, dogmatic attitude that if you violate my rights, you're on the fighting side of me. And we're losing that. Um, where I disagree with those guys is that you, the, if you get rid of these dogmatic, legalistic, constitutional guardrails, the idea that the more organic, authentic version of a just society that they envision will automatically spring forth um, is a huge bet. You know, the idea that the forces of social justice are all of a sudden going to start respecting people's rights and liberties, I think is kind of nuts. Um, and all you have to do is look at any campus controversy. All you have to do is look at the outrageous and bizarre, almost hysteria about how, I mean, I know we don't want to talk about Kavanaugh, but it's so in the air right now. You know, you have these people who, because they're so, their, their tribal mind is so enraged by the blocking of Merrick Kavanaugh. Garland. That, Merrick Garland, sorry. Um, you have so many of these people who, I mean, like literally on Twitter, people are telling me, it is okay to falsely accuse a man of attempted rape because Mitch McConnell blocked a hearing on Merrick Garland. Yeah, Chris Hayes was one of them, and he has this reputation as being a really 
reasonable and sophisticated liberal that often he does bear out, but not in that instance. Yeah, no, look, I mean, and this happens to everybody. And again, I am trying to sort of get away from my sort of smash mouth past on a lot of this stuff. But this thing, it pisses me off, too. I mean, I, I see how people get you, know, you can just you can watch in real time how people's passions are overtaking their reason on when these kinds of things come up. And one of my remedies for this would be to make these fights less important. Right. If, and this is sort of the Ben Sass thing. If the Supreme Court mattered less, and it should matter less in our you know, liberal order, the stakes would be lower, and the willingness of people to grab the nearest weapon to hand would be so much less. But you get reasonable people or generally decent people who kind of lose their minds in these periods, and all of a sudden they can rationalize really grotesque arguments that they would understand, they would see as grotesque if the situation were reversed. Yeah, okay. That wasn't even an AMA question. I was trying to get my place because I couldn't think how any of the questions people actually submitted would have led to that response. Um, let's, let's, let's end with the pets. Everyone loves your pets. Um, the dogs, people who hate your opinions still like your dogs. Um, so one person asked, how did you train those dogs? And this is a question I might have as well because you are pretty like, uh, Woodstock era San Francisco hippie with how you treat the dogs in the sense of like they're rarely on leash. You you trust them to like roam around the woods uh, and not die. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're always there, but like you give them a lot of autonomy. I, I well, I do. I mean, first of all, let's let's divvy up these things, right? So, uh, Cosmo the Wonder Dog, praise be upon him, may he rest in peace. Who was the world's greatest dog and the greatest dog the world will ever know who's the dog in the party hat in my Twitter profile picture. He came to Wait, us. Wait, you're not a dog. <laughs> <laughs> he, he came to us almost with just with built in software that made him awesome. Uh, he could do a whole bunch of tricks that my wife literally taught him in like a week to 10 days when we first got him. And he was crazy smart and he was beautiful. He was built like an East German car though. He was about, two operations shy of being fully bionic by the end. But when I lived in Adams Morgan, we could on busy streets with stop signs and traffic intersections and whatnot, we could walk him off leash. And he just knew that he had to stop at every traffic light before crossing the street. And he followed me on command. Always. He was just a fantastic dog and he kind of spoiled us. And so we kind of, kind of thought that Zoe, the Carolina dog, um, or what I call the dingo, because as people keep asking why I call it dingo, it's because Carolina dogs are often called the American dingo. In the theory, there's some raging debate, which we can talk about at some point. I want to get a dog expert on the show at one point. The theory that a lot of uh, Carolina dog owners have is that they came, off, they came across the first land bridge with the Native Americans like 9,000 years ago, and they've been living in the swamps of Georgia and South Carolina ever since. And there's some people who think that Carolina dog, that, that old yeller, you know, in the movie, of course, they bring in the Brad Pitt of dogs, which is a yellow lab. But there's reason to believe that it was, in fact, a Carolina dog because it's also a yellow dog and much more indigenous to sort of poor areas of the South. One of the things I find fascinating about dogs as a tangent is that if you take a basset hound, a Great Dane, a couple beagles, some French poodles, and you put on an island, and you wait about three or five or ten generations, they'll all end up looking essentially like my white trash swamp dog. Um, because those, those stray dogs you see on the streets of Karak Caracas or Kiev, that's the ur dog. That is what dogs' genes want dogs to look like. And that's why Carolina dogs tend to look like the kind of dog a rancher would shoot on sight. And, um, but part of the problem is, is that means if that theory of where Carolina dogs come from, uh, is true, that means they missed those two or 300 years of really intense canine eugenics in Europe that bred out some of the wilder traits. And so we did not appreciate this when we first got the dingo in part because we were led to believe that it was a German shepherd mix. It's not. And she, um, 
much more wild. I won't regale you with all the stories of how many things she has killed. Um, I still owe Larry Arn one rabbit that it got at Hillsdale. Um, and she was very hard to train. And we do not let her off leash in our neighborhood when we're walking on the street because she's very territorial about other dogs in the area, particularly towards dogs she can beat in a fight. She's very much like a John Bolton type. She's a uh, kiss-up, kick-down kind of dog, and and she's very defensive of our neighborhood, so we don't let her off the leash in our neighborhood. But in the woods, she's better because that's neutral territory, and she's very and she's become much mellower in her in, in her middle age. And the one thing that is true of her and pretty much almost all dogs, beagles and other scent hounds are a different issue because they will follow their nose wherever they take them. But uh, she's very pack-oriented. And so even when she will not come when you call, if you start walking away, she freaks out that she's going to be abandoned and she will come running. And when she was young, we would sometimes have to like literally get in the car and drive away and have her chase the car um, to get her to come back because she was too interested in swallowing chipmunks whole and whatnot. Pippa is a completely different thing. As I've said many times, um, I think also on this podcast, Zoe is like Daryl from The Walking Dead and Pippa is like the dumbest daughter from Downton Abbey. She knows her place in the social hierarchy. She's a very limited understanding of what her rights and responsibilities are. And they mostly can be summarized in a couple things. One is ball. Ball is life. Chase ball, fetch ball. She is a hunting dog. Um, she has been hunting. She was bred for that. She comes from one of the best breeders out west. My father-in-law got her to be a bird dog. Um, and, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson, who keeps trying to steal or buy that dog from me, um, can name all the moves that she does when she's even when she's chasing a tennis ball. They're actually really bird dog things where she's like doing these figure eights to flush birds and all the rest. But she sublimates all that into ball. She loves ball. Ball is good. She's constantly telling me, you know, human, there is a large pile of currency outside, many thousands of dollars. Come get it. And then I come out there and it's just a tennis ball. And she's like, um, okay, now that you're out here, I lied. Let's play with the ball. Way to bury yeah. the lead there that you have a talking dog. Um, well, she says it with her eyes, which are very expressive. Oh. And, um, she is, uh, um, and because of that fixation, she won't run off. I mean, she might, it's really disturbing these days. She and Zoe have learned to hunt together and Pippa knows to do these wide circles where she will flush a rabbit out and drive it towards Zoe. And, um, when we do neighborhood walks where Zoe is on leash, this can be a huge problem because she will you know, yank, the, she can, if you're not prepared for it, she will yank the leash out of your hand and then you got to pry a rabbit out of her mouth. But we've learned, you know, we, when Zoe was turning out to be a pretty problematic dog and we don't believe in sort of giving up on our dogs, she was making huge progress when she was younger and then we boarded her at one of those free range kennels and she came out incredibly hostile to other dogs. We don't know what happened to her in there and we will never send her back to one of those places. But we had to do all the clicker training stuff from scratch and re-socialize her because she was a problem. And um, so I've talked to other people on the road. It's kind of funny. At this book signing I did this week, a couple people came up to me and said that they um, uh, they had Carolina dogs and they were never the handful that Zoe was. We don't know for sure why Zoe was such a problem. I mean, it might be because she was separated from her mom at a super young age. It might be because she was separated from her mom and had a really terrible bout of parvo, which nearly killed her, um, which was a very stressful time. You know, we got this dog for... You know, it was a $35 dog, and we dropped thousands of dollars saving her life on, in, in the critical care unit at our outrageously expensive vet. But uh, she's become a much, much better dog in part because we kind of figured out how to train her. But, I, you know, one of the things I always tell people is that, and it's not like I invented this insight, the best way to deal with high energy or troublesome dogs is just to tire them out. Exercise solves you know, 70, 80, 90% of behavioral problems, depending on the, on the dog. That's one of the things I believe I agree with Caesar Milan about. And, um, if you don't want a, uh, dog that requires that much commitment, um, there are certain breeds that don't require as much exercise. They're much more sort of low key, low energy. It has nothing to do with size. One of my great gripes is how, um, uh, you know, because we take our dogs on road trips all the time, 
hotels say they're dog friendly and then you find out they only want dogs that are 30 pounds or less. And what they're really saying is they want all of those yip yip purse dogs that, um, that women, some women travel with. And the thing is, is that a Jack Russell Terrier, which is a small dog and they're awesome dogs. If it's not trained right, it will do rock star level damage, you know, Sid vicious at the Gramercy park hotel <laughs> level damage to a hotel room, tearing stuff apart, going nuts. Same thing with Basenjis. We actually had a friend of the family who had a Basenji that literally turned on the hot water in the shower and left it running in the steam, made all the wallpaper come off the walls. Uh, Meanwhile, like a Newfoundland or a Great Dane or a Mastiff, as long as you give them a comfortable couch to sit on, you know, they're perfectly happy to go into sort of low power mode for extended periods of time. And so it's a kind of a kind of, you know, it's a canine bigotry that kind of drives me nuts. But you know, exercising dogs is its own reward in a bunch of different ways, and there's nothing better than having a dog that has been properly exhausted in terms of, you know, alleviating your any kind of dog guilt. Oh, I have an interesting story from the road. Um, first of all, at this book signing at um, Washington University School of Law, which was a great, great turnout, NRI and the Show Me Institute did an amazing job promoting the thing. And, uh, we had, uh, this guy told me la- uh, this afternoon or yesterday that we tied, uh, Stephen Levitt, the Freakonomic guy's record for turnout. We had about 500 people. Um, we had to set up two overflow th- rooms. And, uh, one of the things that was great about it is that, you know, when I started the book tour, I was worried that I was going to be constantly getting into nasty fights with people about all the Trump stuff. And it turns out that the people who really hate my guts just don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> why would they it's useful and um and so i got a lot, a lot of nice encouragement from people who like the remnant who say hi to jack um who want you know who want me to you know uh, stay the course i'm on and all that it's very encouraging and i really appreciate it but i also signed a book to jonah goldberg last night um what and when i say that i do not mean that my doppelganger from a parallel universe came in there's a dude young guy named Jonah Goldberg. And everyone thought that he was being not particularly funny going around with my name tag and turned out until it turned out that he's actually named Jonah Goldberg. And it was very, very, very creepy. And I signed his book. There can be only one. And I was very tempted to bury my ballpoint pen in his forehead, but I didn't because he turned out to be a nice kid. And I'm sure he's going to be tickled pink to be on the, be mentioned on this podcast. That's uh, well, technically he's mentioned every episode, but no, that's true. (laughs) That's a very uh, gracious of you to do to not to have killed him because you, you denied yourself a, a Highlander quickening by not Mm -hmm. killing him. Assuming that he was the only other Jonah Goldberg out there. Yeah, when also, I mean, it's a shame if I had killed him, it's a shame it wasn't like at a Florida book event because that's such a Florida man thing to do. Jonah Goldberg kills Jonah Goldberg. Um, but uh, Sorry, Jonah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, no, it was, it was a fun event. And, and again, the trend of people who know me or know my work mostly from this podcast, which kind of still freaks me out, continues apace. So there's that. Oh, at this point, I should talk about our second sponsor, and this is in a, and I particularly hope the people who are hung around this long will listen because it means you actually care about this this stuff. So, National Review, you know, uh, has been giving out for the last five years these William F. Buckley Jr. prizes, and they're great events. The NRI people do an amazing job um, putting these things on. They are, I, I think, classy is a profoundly unclassy word. But they're done at a very high level of professionalism. They're really sort of wonderful events. I was the MC of one in Dallas a few years ago. And uh, this year, it's in Chicago. And I want to invite anybody who's interested to join the National Review Institute on October 18th at Chicago's Cultural Center for the fifth annual William F. Buckley Junior Prize Dinner, honoring Karen Buckwald Wright with the Buckley Prize for Leadership and Supporting Liberty and Ed Fulner with the Buckley Prize for Leadership and Political Thought. I'll be there along with my NR colleagues to celebrate Bill's legacy and honor this year's esteemed prize recipients. Limited tickets and sponsorships are still available. You can RSVP online at nrinstitute slash WFB Prize 2018. Uh, that's 
NRI, um, or sorry, nrinstitute.org at uh, slash WFB Prize 2018. I hope to see you in Chicago next month. It's going to be a good time. And since I believe I have no hosting or emceeing uh, responsibilities whatsoever, um, I can actually be overserved at the bar and have conversations with people, which I sometimes can't do when I'm involved in the program. So I hope to see you there. And with that, uh, let me thank Jack for, for manning this from the, the mothership. Let me thank again the Show Me Institute. And oh, and this Friday, I am the, I'm giving the, I, I think it's the keynote lecture or speech at the Philadelphia Society on, on conservatism. And I'll tell more people about that later. And of course, if you can review uh, The Remnant at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all of those various platforms, um, it would be great. Um, unless you hate this podcast, in which case, maybe you shouldn't do that. Um, and on Twitter, we are at Jonah Remnant. Um, and if you are at, uh, want to email us, it is theremnantpod at gmail.com. Oh, and I will be on uh, Meet the Press this Sunday, which should be interesting given the news of the week. And Jack, do we have anything else that we need to get out there? Go to jonagoldberg.com and look for the upcoming appearances tab to find where you will be. Oh, that is an excellent point. Do that. And until next time, I'll see you on the next episode of The Remnant. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>